Hello and welcome to the latest in our podcast series where over the last 12 months we've been discussing some of the key issues and challenges facing UK businesses. In a previous podcast we talked over the easing of lockdown measures and the subsequent transitioning of employees back into the workplace and this time around we're going to expand on this and examine the recent updated living with COVID guidance um, which came into effect on the 1st of April this year and which followed the PM's announcement in February where all restrictions in England have been lifted. Um, To lead us through this subject, we've been joined by Judith Curran, Partner and Head of Employment here at Clarkson Wright & Jakes. So to start with, Judith, can you give us an overview of the guidance and the impact that this has had on our business community? Yep, sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, As you're saying, although COVID restrictions and rules have been um, scaled back really now. COVID is still prevalent in the community and we continue to see you know, high rates of infection across the country at various times. The government, as we know, published its living with COVID guidance on the 1st of April, but unfortunately, it's turned out to be a little bit disappointingly brief. Uh, the guidance didn't set out anything new for employers and really relies on the existing principles of maintaining good ventilation and a clean workspace. Um, The guidance leaned more towards respiratory infection, really, rather than specifically COVID. So the symptoms identified by the guidance have been really expanded from what we already knew about COVID being the continuous cough, high temperature, fever and chills, um, loss of or change in sense of smell. But the following additional symptoms were added um, and really being more generic sort of respiratory infection symptoms such as shortness of breath, unexplained tiredness or lack of energy, muscle aches and pains, and, and the government clarify that that's not caused by exercise, uh, a loss of appetite, headache, which might last longer than normal, um, sore throat, stuffy or runny nose, um, diarrhea, feeling unwell or, or being sick. So the guidance pretty much was was that employees were advised that if they experienced these symptoms, that, for example, they might have had a high temperature, they didn't feel well enough to go to work or carry out normal activities, that they stay at home and avoid contact with other people until they no longer had a high temperature or no longer felt unwell. The guidance does go on to suggest that employees should try to work from home if they can, but if not, and a little bit unhelpfully, to discuss the options with their employer. But the guidance doesn't really give employers um, any suggestions on what options might look like if you have an employee who finds himself in this situation. The obvious problem with the guidance is that there is scope for employees to exploit it and employers could be faced with a situation where an employee reports absence due to, say, a headache, which may or may not be COVID-related. There is no longer any free testing available, so it becomes a little bit tricky for employers. A recent research carried out by Champion Health found that more than half of employees surveyed sort of since the return to work and since the end of the restrictions said they felt fatigued and a similar number reported tiredness, which was impacting their productivity. Um, The guidance from the government, therefore, is really of quite limited help and employers may still be facing a number of issues with employees. All right, thank you. It it certainly does sound, as you said right at the beginning, you know, very brief indeed. So, with this guidance of of limited help, employers are left with 
a number of key important decisions that they need to make. Um, one of the things that I've heard quite a lot about is around the subject of um, sick pay entitlement. So mm-hmm. let's have a look at that now. Um, what do you think companies need to consider around the issue of sick pay entitlement? Yeah, many employers are still considering what they should do around sick pay benefits and whether they should reduce any company sick pay benefits for employees who are not vaccinated against COVID. Um, Companies such as IKEA, Next, Wessex Water caused a bit of a stir earlier this year when they announced that they would reduce or withhold company sick pay benefits for unvaccinated workers who were self-isolating with COVID. Um, However, as we've seen over the last few months, many fully vaccinated, fully boosted people have also contracted COVID. And although there's no longer a requirement to self-isolate, the government guidance is that people continue to do so for at least five days. So it's not possible, as we know, for all employees to work from home whilst self-isolating. So the problem for the employer remains that if their workforce can't work from home and or there's no company sick pay benefit, then employees, and especially those on lower wages, tend not to report illness and they may continue to try and attend at work, which potentially puts um, the wider workforce and, of course, the business at risk. The rules on statutory sick pay did change in February when the last of the COVID restrictions were lifted by the government. So the usual rules on statutory sick pay now apply again. Employees uh, would no longer get SSP from day one of their absence. The current rate of SSP um, is £99.35 gross a week if you're employed and you earn £120 a week. The government did announce that further £500 support payment for those on the lowest incomes who were contacted by Track and Trace. And a recent labour force survey carried out by the Office of National Statistics showed that 17.2% or 5.6 million people in the UK workforce would not qualify for SSP at all. So if an organisation has workers who are deemed to be self-employed, then they have no entitlement to benefits or statutory sick pay at all. There's no incentive to persuade the employee to voluntarily self-isolate if they contract COVID um, and would have to rely on SSP or, in fact, receive no financial benefit at all during a period of illness or self-isolation. The government's guidance is just that. It's guidance. It's not legally enforceable, so employees may ignore it and they could um, continue to attempt to attend at work even though they've tested positive for COVID. Um Employers are able to exclude workers who are obviously unwell, and most employers will rely on the health and safety legislation dealing with infectious diseases to do that. Um, It's recommended that employers do now consider putting in place a policy and guidance for employees or workers on how the organisation is going to deal with ongoing COVID-related absence, what if any sick pay benefits they may offer, and what working arrangements will be in place if an employee is self-isolating. Great stuff. Um, Your point about uh, putting into place a policy and guidance um, ties nicely into what I was going to ask you next, which was um, in order to operate your business both legally and commercially, what what would you suggest that organisations consider? Mm. Um, And again, I think it's it's often helpful to, to bring this to life. Whether you have any case studies that demonstrate the need to manage absence both appropriately and also professionally. Yeah, and I think the first point would be it's really important to review and update policies on sickness absence as a starting point. 
Um, lots of employers, as I've mentioned, will now need to rely on the health and safety legislation to, to require an employee with a positive COVID test or indeed any other infectious sort of respiratory disease to remain absent from work until they've had two negative tests. Um, employers who do not offer paid sick leave could permit an employee to use some annual leave during this time, but that isn't ideal. It's not recommended because it does tend to skew your sickness absence record. And of course, then it allows employees to use up all of their holiday at one, one time in the year, rather than ensuring that employees have adequate time off over the course of the year to rest, uh, rather than just using time to recuperate from an illness, uh, which is probably not the same thing. Um, employers, of course, with up to 250 employees can recover the cost of the two-week statutory sick pay. So if your organisation employs that many people, then you could, of course, um, consider paying slightly more sick pay, given that at least the first two weeks of the statutory sick pay can be recovered. Where employees can work from home, it's not an issue. So long as they're well enough to work, then they can do so uh, with your agreement. Uh, Having a policy that excludes non-vaccinated workers from paid sick leave is most likely to be troublesome. There will be some people who are unable for medical reasons to be vaccinated, and many women planning a pregnancy, for example, have declined the vaccine, as well as those who were maybe pregnant over the last year and who may now be on maternity leave, perhaps not vaccinated but returning to work this year. Employment lawyers have viewed the risk of treating different sections of your workforce differently or less favourably because of their vaccination status as being risky and likely to lead to discrimination or dismissal type claims. However, we have seen um, that the tribunal have been a little bit more robust in dealing with COVID-related claims um, that we have starting to see be reported now. Um, And just looking at some of the actual cases, um, Chris, that have been reported recently, um, so we've seen in the case referred to as XVY, an employee um, remained fearful of returning to work, mainly because of the high levels of COVID infection in the population. Um, some employees will have vulnerabilities themselves or live with those who remain vulnerable to COVID infection. And that's what XVY dealt with. Um, the employee had refused to return to work due to a fear of catching COVID and passing it on. The employee X was worried about her partner, who was apparently at a high risk of becoming seriously unwell should um, they contract the virus. She alleged a protected disclosure to Y, the employer, uh, when she informed them that she wouldn't return to work because under the health and safety legislation, and it's, I think, Section 100 of the Employment Rights Act, she alleged that there was a serious and imminent danger to her health if she did return to work. Uh, The company informed her that if she didn't return to work, that she wouldn't receive any pay. Um, The company didn't believe that the employee had a reasonable belief that returning to work would put her husband or her in serious or imminent danger. The employee argued that her fears around the risk of COVID were a genuinely held philosophical belief under the Equality Act, which she described as a fear of catching COVID and a need to protect herself and others. If she had not been paid, she also alleged a financial detriment due to the ongoing loss. The tribunal, however, in their findings did not dispute that she had a genuine fear about COVID um, and coronavirus, but held that a fear of the virus and views about how to best protect oneself did not amount to a belief under the Equality Act. Her fears were also found to be 
really a widely held opinion and as such she did not actually succeed in her claim. There was a contrasting case then of Mr Quelch versus Courtiers Support Services Limited where Mr Quelch was found to have been unfairly and wrongfully dismissed from his role as a compliance analyst at Courtiers Support Services which was an a- is an asset management firm. Um, he was dismissed because he didn't return to work after the first lockdown. The reason for that was because he wanted to shield to continue to protect his girlfriend, who was clinically vulnerable due to asthma and a heart condition. The tribunal heard that he worked effectively from home, so there were no home working issues. The employer, however, had decided to have a phased return to office-based working in May 2020, and he had been due to return to the office in the final phase of that in July 2020. He stated that he felt he should continue to follow the government guidance and shield, but he was not prepared to use annual leave or to take unpaid leave in order to do so. When he did not return to work, he was put on unpaid leave and after a disciplinary process, he was dismissed for gross misconduct, apparently by letter. He appealed against his dismissal, but he wasn't successful. So interestingly, the tribunal found in this case that it was not reasonable to demand an employee to return to their place of work when it was contrary to the government guidance at the time. The employer had failed to show that there was a potentially fair reason for the dismissal and as such it was unfair and fell outside of the range of reasonable responses which were available to it. So the employer should probably have considered giving him a warning, even a final written warning and of course they may have also considered a dismissal with notice rather than the more severe uh, sanction of a gross misconduct dismissal. The tribunal also commented that even if there was a breach of trust and confidence, there had um, or there had been any misconduct, the dismissal would not have been a reasonable response in this situation. And it's always important to note that any outcome in a disciplinary process needs to be proportionate and, and reasonable to the allegations made against the employee. An interesting commentary there from the tribunal that this probably was never going to be a dismissible offence. Um, Now that all the restrictions are lifted, employees have less reason to refuse to attend work, but employers should continue to be mindful of the government's guidance, which the tribunal would expect an employer to be aware of and take into account when making decisions about employees. So just one other case to look at on um, on this topic, and it was a case decided before the COVID vaccination became mandatory in care home settings. Um, The tribunal found in the case of a Miss Alette and Scarsdale Grange Nursing Home that an employee who had refused the vaccine on the basis of her Rastafarian belief, which prohibits any kind of non-natural medication, had been fairly dismissed. And it's an important case because it does predate that sort of compulsory mandatory vaccination that we now have in um, the health sector or parts of the health sector. Um, The tribunal found that Miss Alette had in fact refused the vaccine because she didn't trust what the care home or the authorities were telling her about the safety of the vaccine at the time. Miss Alette had not been under any contractual obligation to be vaccinated, but the tribunal agreed that it had been a reasonable management instruction to be vaccinated against COVID and that her refusal to do so had amounted to gross misconduct. So the outcomes, as we can see, even on just those three brief cases, are very different and every tribunal will reach its own decision, which is not binding on another tribunal. So I think that if an employer implements a policy which offers lower or no company sick pay or benefits to those 
who are unvaccinated or treats unvaccinated staff differently, then it can expect complaints and possibly claims for discrimination and unfair dismissal. Um, if you've got issues or employers have got issues with that, you know, our employment team um, can review a policy, we can draft policies, and we're always happy to have a chat about um, these types of issues. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that it wasn't too long ago um, that we we're all working remotely from home. Mm. Um, going back to the living with COVID guidance, does does the guidance cover this subject at all? And in addition, what's the latest thinking regarding remote working? Yeah, unfortunately, the um, the living with COVID guidance really doesn't address the point, I don't think, of employees working from home. It, it Not very useful sort of, at all, but- sort of really hopes that employees can work from home and, and as we said, to sort of chat to your employer about what the options are. Um, but of course, you know, millions of people have worked from home during the sort of compulsory lockdowns when when people were ordered to do so. Um, but, you know, a workforce can work remotely. Um, most employers have already implemented, I think, a hybrid working policy or they're dealing with sort of flexible working uh, requests on a case-by-case basis. But either way, a couple of things to consider about home working or hybrid or loan workers. Um, you know, thankfully, as those COVID restrictions eased, you know, workers were able to return to their place of work we were all sort of able to leave our kitchen tables and spare bedrooms behind us and return to our normal place of work Um, but just because employees had to work from home during a lockdown does not mean that it proves that it can be done on a permanent basis Um, employers should always therefore consider a request to work from home flexible working arrangements um, or even a wider change um, in your business policy um, on normal working conditions and not what we've been through in the last sort of year and a half, two years. And um, for example, you know, during the lockdown, employees had to work where they lived, regardless of who else was there, who they shared their home with, you know, unless they were maybe key workers and they could have continued to attend a place of work. But for the vast majority of employees during lockdown, they worked alongside spouses, partners, children of all ages, pets of all sorts, and perhaps with other family members too. These are not normal working conditions, um, even if you do tend to bring your dog into the office. So, you know, employers need to remain responsible for employees, even if they are working remotely. So it remains really important that back now, I suppose, in more normal working times, normal working conditions, that employers do continue to assess carefully whether an employee can work from home effectively, whether it's safe, um, you know, and the experience of this during the compulsory lockdowns is a good guide, but it cannot be relied on exclusively as a reason to approve a sort of home working or hybrid or loan working arrangement. Employers should be confident that an employee can work normally. They're not going to be interrupted by home life intrusions. Ideally, there should be dedicated workspace, a workstation, a private area for meetings or calls. Also think about who else is going to be home during the day. Um, you know, will the person, the employee, be able to work without interruptions? Uh, consider documents and data security for private, confidential or sensitive work. Um, the storage and disposal of that kind of data um, or information in an employee's home. So these are all really important issues for any organisation. There are, of course, proven health benefits to uh, flexible working. And there's a wide range of research that shows that employees who work more flexibly are healthier, they're more productive, they're shown to go that extra mile at work, they have a good work-life balance and it improves retention rates and it does 
assist with attracting good talent and improved productivity. But if you are um, currently having employees working hybridly at home on their own um, or home worker even, you should have risk assessments in place. You should have a hybrid working policy or a home worker policy and you should have a home worker agreement with those employees who work in that way. Um, with COVID ongoing, though, there is no easy answers for those employees who now need to self-isolate or workers who need to self-isolate and who can't work remotely. Um, we don't expect the government is going to revisit their guidance, you know, and the government's theme is that we probably are being encouraged to return to normal life. Uh, for many employers and employees alike, though, COVID does remain a concern and a challenge to, to their employment and also to running a business. Employers should ensure that they give careful consideration to proposals to change paid sick pay, sorry, paid sick pay benefits for employees absent with COVID and to take early advice on policy changes or any change to an employee's pay or benefits or other decision regarding their employment. Um, it's also probably worth noting, you know, the potential impact of employees suffering with long COVID as well. There's much to be understood yet about long COVID. Uh, what seems to be common so far is that employees suffer mainly with fatigue, brain fog, aches and pains. And whilst uh, long COVID may not be recognised as a disability under the Equality Act, the symptoms can amount to a disability. Um, for example, fatigue, if it's long lasting, it's lasting 12 months or longer, and it's very likely to have that substantial adverse impact on day-to-day -day life. So quite likely to, to reach the threshold for what needs to be a disability under the Equality Act. So it's important to continue to manage employees with long COVID in the usual way as any other employee on long-term sickness absence or who ha have high levels of absence due to ill health or disability-related issues. So you should be considering making adjustments to the absence level thresholds before triggering any formal capability process as you would do in any other uh, long-term absence type cases. Again, referrals to occupational health are always useful, seeking a report from any treating physician or consultant. And as always, seeking that early legal advice and um, support in these types of cases is always recommended and always useful because it really can help reduce the risk of, you know, pitfalls for claims for unfair dismissal and discrimination. Thanks, Judith. Um, let's leave it there for today. Lots of really interesting and useful information to mull over and digest. Um, we hope you found this podcast helpful. Um, we hope it gives you a deeper insight into the Living With COVID guidance um, and also the latest developments regarding working through the pandemic. If you haven't already done so, you can head over to our website and listen to some of our other podcasts that we've recorded over the last 12 months, um, which includes many interesting subjects such as managing redundancy situations, uh, social media, and also managing mental health in the workplace. So on behalf of myself and Judith, we hope you enjoyed listening to this edition as much as we've enjoyed recording it. Um, thank you for listening and hope you can join us next time.